everyone and welcome back to Mimosa Talk. Sorry this episode is a bit delayed, but Halloween weekend got the best of me. Without further ado, let's get this episode rolling. Grab those mimosas. Cheers! Disney Plus is ready to take over the world and knock out all of its streaming competition. There are a few things I'm very excited about when it comes to this new service. Obviously, the Lizzie McGuire reunion, which is officially happening after Hilary Duff posted a photo of the whole McGuire family reuniting and holding the pilot script. Duff captioned the photo, we are standing in what will soon be the McGuire living room. What's up, fam? We doing this. This is what dreams are made of. Disney Plus also teased a sequel to the beloved Halloween film, Hocus Pocus. While nothing can replace the Sanderson sisters and the original 1993 film about the three 17th century witches, who returned to wreak havoc in modern-day Salem, I think there's a lot of potential here to create a movie that will tap into the nostalgia while also engaging new fans. And considering the whole cast, mainly now the grown children, still hang out together, the sequel could focus on them and their children. Maybe Max and Allison had kids together, and those kids now light the black flame candle on Halloween. All I'm saying is, I'm not hating on it just yet. And One Tree Hill and Chicago PD star Sophia Bush has joined the cast of Love, Simon, a Disney Plus series inspired by the 2018 novel that was based on a best-selling book. The series is set in the same world as the film and follows Victor, a new student experiencing a new city and struggling with his sexual orientation. He reaches out to Simon to help him navigate life and also befriends Mia. Bush will star in a reoccurring role as Veronica, the girlfriend of Mia's father, who runs a nonprofit, helps women, and is very approachable. I'm just excited to hear back on our TV screens. We're hitting the time of the month where shows are either getting really, really good news or not so great news. CBS ordered extra episodes of five new fall TV shows, All Rise, Bob Hart's Abishola, The Unicorn, Carol's Second Act, and the thriller Evil. ABC gave back orders to Mixed Dish and drama Stumptown. It also ordered additional episodes of the sophomore drama The Rookie. Blackish also scored an order for nine additional episodes. But sadly, Emergence isn't getting a dose of good news as it hasn't received any additional episodes and it seems that ABC is going to wait to make a decision about the future of the series. Despite tamer ratings, the CW has also given their full backing to Batwoman and Nancy Drew. They announced that both shows received a back order for nine episodes of this season. So congrats to all the shows and Emergence, we're rooting for you. And now, our other favorite thing to talk about, reboots. Everyone, send your prayers because a good Christian bitches reboot is in development at the CW. The hour-long adaptation would take place in high school, a prestigious private Christian academy in Dallas, that is. Uh, The new girl on campus, who is also an atheist daughter of a minister, gets involved with three good Christian girls who blame her for ruining their lives. And of course drama ensues. In case you aren't familiar, the original had a pretty star-studded cast with Kristen Chenoweth, Leslie Bibb, Younger's Miriam Shore, and Riverdale's Marisol Nichols. I would be on board if the reboot featured any of these women, even in a guest-starring capacity. 
This technically isn't a reboot, but The CW is hoping to expand the Arrowverse with a Superman and Lois series. It would star Tyler Hecklin and Elizabeth Toloch, who debuted in The CW's other superhero drama, Supergirl. Obviously, Superman came through to help his cousin when the worlds were in danger. Now, word is that the series is already in development, so it seems like a surefire series order. And look, the CW loves its superhero shows. With Arrow taking a bow this season, it needs something to replace it. In other news, someone had a little too much Halloween punch. Supernatural's Jared Padalecki made headlines Monday after Halloween weekend because he got arrested for assault and public intoxication. Yikes. The actor was taken into custody Sunday morning in Austin, Texas at Stereotype Bar, which he frequents often. Padalecki reportedly struck a bartender inside the bar, put a friend who was trying to stop him in a headlock, and then tried to bribe the arresting officers to get out of an arrest. Which you can imagine didn't go over very well. Don't you guys know who he is? He's going to be the next Chuck Norris. What's a bond of 15k, right? Over in our baby monitor, Pretty Little Liars actress Shay Mitchell had her baby. Less than 24 hours after announcing that she and boyfriend Matt Babel welcomed a daughter, Shay posted a behind-the-scenes video on YouTube documenting her 33-hour labor. Yep, she's a trooper. It was the final episode of her YouTube series documenting her whole pregnancy. Oh my god, my water's breaking, Shay announced at the kickstart of the video. Though she didn't show any footage of the actual delivery, she did show the pain she went through leading up to the moment, and then a clip of Matt sleeping peacefully as she laid in pain. The video ended with the happy parents and their beautiful baby girl, and a glass of champagne. Congrats, and cheers. Speaking of Pretty Little Liars babies, Troy and Belisario, who played Spencer Hastings, revealed that her baby daughter's name is Aurora. A perfect name for a little princess, who she welcomed back in October 2018 with husband Patrick Adams. Orange is the New Black's Laura Preppen is pregnant and expecting her second child with hubby Ben Foster. We are so excited to announce that our family is growing. The actress captioned a photo on Instagram, adding, life is beautiful, alongside, hashtag, knocked up. The photo showed her cradling her baby bump and posing with her two-year-old daughter, Ella. And now, it's time to ring the spoiler alert! Let's get into it, my TV lovers. The World Series forced the resident to skip a week while Emergence took a break, probably anticipating that the game would go long and it wasn't worth risking viewers. The resident returns this Tuesday in what looks like a live action film. There's a pilot with a blood alcohol level way above the legal limit, which Pravesh declares as a threat, just as we see a plane carrying Dr. Bell crash in a field. Look, I'm all for the dramatics, but I really just need some answers on the aging and Mina situation. Are they going to get together? Will Mina confess her feelings? Can we get another makeout session? I'm waiting. Emergence picks up with Joe wanting to help save Piper from Richard Kindred, her supposed creator. The tagline reads, they must catch him before he catches her. But something tells me it won't be so easy to catch Piper when she's devoted to Joe and her new family. 
Batwoman introduces its newest hero to the thirsty city of Gotham. They've wanted a hero for so long that Kate Kane convinces herself that the simple fact of her being there is good enough. The episode this Sunday delved into Batwoman's truths and acknowledged that while she isn't the best at keeping secrets and hiding a part of herself, it's essential for the city. Kate's stumbling along and learning the ropes of this whole hero thing, but it's not terrible to watch. She shows promise and has the heart for bringing out Gotham's best, and she's willing to make the sacrifices as we saw with her decision to break up with Reagan. Is this the last we've seen of her? Probably not. Do I hope that she returns later on as some kind of villain? You bet. Sophie continues to confuse everyone, including herself. She told Kate to move on, but couldn't bear to see Kate actually move on. Girl, make up your mind. She needs to divorce that husband of hers because she's clearly not that into him. I don't even know where he is. But it speaks to Sophie truly knowing Kate that she's been able to figure out that she's Batwoman within like one episode. Kate also is learning how to handle prisoners. She took it a bit too far with Dodgson, but thankfully got him to marry just in time to save his life. And Mary continued to beat a straight-up badass by using Dodgson's hallucinations to prod some information out of him. Who is the mouse in Alice's game that he's referring to? Magpie wasn't as promising of a villain as I hoped she would be. She would she was reduced to dropping down. She was reduced to dropping down and stealing the bling, and all Batwoman needed to do was hook, line, and sinker. It was kind of pathetic, but I'm hoping future villains of the week will be better with time. The series teased a major revelation surrounding Catherine Hamilton Kane, but sadly the reveal felt slightly short. We knew Catherine was hiding something. I thought that she might have played some kind of role in Beth's disappearance, but when she paid people to pass off a deer skull fragments as Beth's remains through phony DNA testing, um, I was kind of like, meh, okay, that, I guess that's it. It's not as villainous as I hoped it would be, but the commander was pissed nonetheless. Catherine's reasoning for what she did was that she didn't want her husband and Kate to continue, continue searching and putting their lives on hold. You could see it was eating her up inside and that she truly felt guilty. But again, it's not as exciting as I hoped it would be. It also takes away from Alice's motivations. She knew that Catherine lied to her father this whole time. So how could she be mad at him for not continuing to look for her? Her anger and revenge should solely be aimed at Catherine. Not at the father who only stopped looking for her when he thought there was evidence that she had actually perished. Then again, the fact that Alice has been able to get under the commander's skin about it means that on some subconscious level, he knew that the bones were not Beth's, and he had an inkling that she may still be alive. He believed Alice because he knew his daughter was still out there. Supergirl bounced back in the ratings, holding steady after hitting an all-time low last week. And listen, I get it. The Martian storyline isn't the best. It seems overdone, and it doesn't cast John Jones in a good light. But it's also not giving us any reason to connect with his regret. We haven't seen any personal flashback to John and his brother Malefic, aside from the moment that John erased him from his memory. 
I'm more intrigued about Lena tampering with the Phantom Zone projector in order to send Malefic to her lab instead. She wants to study his mind control to help her better the human race. She's halfway to becoming a full-fledged villain at this point, but I think she's in over her head with Malefic. He's too powerful and he's able to control humans. Why wouldn't he control her? Lena might need help from her super friends after all, but it really sucks seeing her completely use and abuse Supergirl's friendship and justify it by the fact that Supergirl lied to her. She's no better than Supergirl at this point, and she's hurting everyone that has ever given her a chance despite the Luther name. There was a lot of moving parts this week as Supergirl traveled to Mexico City to spy on William, the jerk journalist who previously killed Kara's story. Nia spied on him and assumed that he was working in organized crime. Supergirl then did some digging and found out this massive, pretty little liars inspired board in his hideout just as he walked in. For some weird reason, Supergirl changed back into Kara to confront him about it, when it would have made more sense for Supergirl to be hunting him down. But whatever. Turns out William's just a good guy who was trying to bring down Andrea Rojas. He's undercover at CatCo, and he's been putting up a front so that no one would get close to him. Except now, Kara's invested. And he's being kind of flirtatious, and there's definitely going to be a love story here. Even if Elena, the woman whose death he faked, is his lover, there's definitely some kind of chemistry happening between him and Kara. The exciting part of this storyline, though, is that we'll get to learn more about what kind of villain Rojas really is. What is she capable of? I also don't mind that this storyline allows Kara to flex her journalistic muscles a little bit to uncover this massive conspiracy or something of the sorts. It won't be Supergirl getting into this, it'll be Kara, and it'll force her to start hiding her identity again because William right now is the only person who doesn't know the truth aside from Andrea Rojas. And lastly, we said goodbye to James Olsen. James went back to his roots to Calvintown. When he saw his hometown was being overrun by a government prison, and when he met with a little kid named Simon, who he saw himself in, James realized that his next steps were to go back to his roots. He decided to bring journalistic integrity back to the small town, buy the Calvintown Gazette, give Simon a camera just like his father gave him, and return to going by his old name, Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy Olsen. It was a feel-good, full-circle moment that could have been made stronger had the episode spent more time showing us James's past through flashbacks and less time focusing on this Martian feud that didn't really do much for us. If this is the last we see of James, it's sad. But at least we know he's out there fighting the good fight the way he was always meant to. With joy out of the picture, God Friended Me returned to normal and a slightly more boring formula. It was all a bit predictable as Miles got a friend suggestion for a woman named Claire, who just so happened to be the Bishop of New York's daughter. Once a recovering addict, Miles and friends assumed that Claire had relapsed, but instead they found out that she was stealing meds from a hospital and running a rogue clinic for those without health care. 
Nothing about this friend's suggestion stood out, and it seems like the whole point of it was to get rid of the Bishop of New York so that a vacancy would open up for the right person to take the job. Arthur. Is Arthur going to take the job, though? I don't know. Variables have changed since he was last in the running. For starters, he accepted this new phase in his life without the church. He's also getting married to a great woman and one who wants to enjoy retirement with him. He has this whole new purpose in life, but still he has that pull to be involved in the church in some way. He considered the chief of staff position, but on a trial run because Bishop Thompson promised it wouldn't be full time. But now the gig of Bishop would require a lot more sacrifice, time that really cuts into his family life and his personal life. It's a lot of dedication. If Trish wasn't into him getting involved in a part-time role in the church, she's definitely not going to support this. Will Arthur follow his dreams? Have his dreams changed? Will Trish's decision weigh heavily on his? What do you think Arthur should do? There's also a new man in Kara's life, Adam Gray. For now, these two are strictly co-workers, but I can't be the only one who picked up on some kind of vibes from them. Adam asked Kara to join him on an exciting piece, and seeing how bored she was with her mundane life at Catapult, she agreed. I'm glad the show isn't making them competitors because that's not the spirit of God friended me, but I also don't think getting too close to Adam is going to be good for Kara. If TV shows thrive on love triangles, this is God friended me's way of including one. Which kind of sucks because Kara and Miles are so good and wholesome and they're just like in a really good spot right now. I'm also a little disappointed that they made Kara return to Catapult after she had this exciting journey in Paris where she grew as a person and as a journalist only to just come back to the same job she held previously. It's almost setting her back and stifling her character development. Then, of course, we have the cultural expectations from Jaya's parents, who believe that this is the moment where she and Rakesh get married and have children. I love that God Friended Me takes time to accurately depict different cultures, but I need Jaya to stand up to her parents. Her parents are old school, and they don't share the same values as she does. But Rakesh and Jaya are very obviously not ready for marriage. It doesn't make them not serious about each other. It makes them millennials who are succeeding in their careers and trying to build a foundation for those next steps. There's a way for Jaya to communicate that to her parents while still remaining respectful. Instead, she's now fake breaking up with Rakesh because she thinks that'll somehow make things better and easier. But I think this fake breakup is going to lead to a real breakup. Like, Rakesh may have agreed, but his face said otherwise, and if Jaya cannot stand up to her parents, I don't think there's a way that this relationship is actually going to work out. And that just, just breaks my heart. This Is Us launched into a brand new mystery, and one I wasn't expecting. At the end of the episode, as adult Kate finds Polaroid photos in the piano that the Pearson brothers sent her, she is shocked to see a photo of her old boyfriend, Mark. Now, had it not been for Rebecca's comment, I would have just thought that it was a bad breakup that Kate remembered, but Rebecca saying that, quote-unquote, I wanted you kids to be happy so badly that I ignored the signs, quote, is troublesome. It's unclear what happened with Mark, but it's lending itself to some kind of abuse storyline. 
This is us just a really magnificent job at handling heavy storylines with grace and dignity and in a truly realistic manner. When other shows would exaggerate mental health storylines for views and entertainment value, This Is Us gives an accurate depiction of what it's like to live with anxiety and panic attacks. So, I have no doubt that they'll handle abuse with the same care. However, I'm not sure that it's such an organic storyline for Kate as it's never been mentioned before. Randall's anxiety and panic attacks have always been part of him and have shaped who he is today. Yet Kate's never mentioned being abused before or having some kind of an abusive relationship. Now, I'm not saying it should have defined her, but it does feel like it's like a last-minute development that is not an authentic one. Mark's decision to look up Kate's address and show up uninvited was a little weird, but it didn't raise any warning signs. It seemed like he just wanted to support her, and we knew that they were a thing since we saw them hooking up in the closet. But then, there's Kevin's distaste for him almost immediately after meeting him, and the comment that he's 23 years old, whereas Kate was in her first year of college. In her defense, her parents were six years apart too, but in this case, the age gap seems to be telling that Mark's some kind of predator. I guess whatever happens here, it's reassuring that she has such a good man by her side now. Toby is truly undervalued at times. You know who else is undervalued? Miguel. Oh, Miguel. When someone asked him, who are you at dinner, it broke my heart. He's the guy who was there for the Pearson family in their toughest times. He's Jack's best friend who vowed to take care of his family and kept that damn promise. Kate made it seem like Miguel being around all the time was a bad thing. But look at how many times he was there simply to help keep Rebecca from having a full-on breakdown. She's strong, one of the strongest women on TV, but Miguel was a bonus crutch that kept her afloat, and he's been there ever since. We're seeing the first beginnings of their relationship, which is awesome because we never really saw what led them to getting together or to crossing that line from, you know, Jack's best friend to now being Rebecca's future husband. Kevin stood up for Cassidy when her husband, Ryan, didn't give her the respect she warranted at a hockey game honoring veterans. Ryan wasn't into the comments, telling Kevin that he wasn't going to support something that destroyed his wife. Fair enough. He also told Kevin to stay away from his wife, which Kevin took as a sign that Ryan still loves Cassidy, aka really good news. You know, Nikki's right. Kevin does have some pretty strange relationships. Chicago PD had a pretty rough episode following such an incredible crossover that I don't even want to give it too much attention. The case involved a murder in the Balkan community, which ended up being predictable and less than exciting. There was also a case of Ruzik getting too caught up with patrol after seeing one of the officers bully a recruit. Apparently, it was just standard behavior towards recruits, but Ruzik wasn't okay with it. And while I commend him for standing up, there was a better way to go about it. He needs to watch himself since he's still in hot water for taking the heat off of Antonio. All in all, it it wasn't PD's greatest episode, but hopefully it isn't a sign of how the season's going to unfold. Moving on to Chicago Med, where Natalie made a terrible mistake. Natalie, girl, what are we going to do with you? No, honestly, 
These doctors can get overbearing at times and they all test their limits quite frequently. But Natalie didn't just blur the lines on the most recent Chicago Med. She crossed it and then sabotaged her career in the process. Natalie gave a child a vaccination for pneumonia after the child's parents, who were taking a more holistic approach, explicitly told her not to. And the worst part is Natalie did it without concrete evidence that the child actually had pneumonia. For all we know, it could have been some kind of sinus infection. Now, there's definitely a lawsuit coming and her job is at stake. And it seems that the only point in any of this was Natalie trying to prove that she was right. Did she want to rub it into Will and Lanik's face? I don't really know. I usually expect this kind of behavior from Will Halstead, but he was the one trying to rein Natalie in this time and keeping an eye on her since she's still suffering from memory loss. Maybe he should have just kept a better eye on her. I have no idea. Maybe this was impulsivity brought on by her injury. Maybe it's a new ego-driven situation. Or maybe Tori DeVito wants to leave the show. We'll see how it pans out this week, but it's not looking good for her. Maggie came clean about her breast cancer diagnosis to her nurse friends. April kind of already knew something was up, but now it was confirmed that Maggie is sick. There were some really strong moments here. Maggie putting the wig on to make it seem like everything was normal was powerful, but having her come clean by simply taking the wig off and showing her hair and not saying a word was, it was gut punching. She's going to need the support because cancer isn't something that you can beat on your own. And she wouldn't be able to keep it a secret much longer. (sighs) Admitting that she is going through breast cancer doesn't make her weak. It makes her a damn superhero. And then there was the very poor storyline with Dr. Charles's wife, Caroline, trying to play matchmaker for Bert and Sharon. I know she's ill and possibly feeling her mortality and believes that since it worked for her and Dr. Charles, it must work for everyone. But Bert and Sharon, they're just not on good terms. The setup is not, it's not a good thing. And I hope Sharon makes herself very clear that she's not interested in rekindling anything here. She has enough to worry about when it comes to the hospital and doctors like Natalie, and she doesn't need to include a crappy ex in her life's drama. You'd think I'd be used to Riverdale going off the rails by now, but it still manages to surprise me. Nestled deep within what seemed like a normal episode, by Riverdale standards that is, um, was the conclusion of an already outrageous storyline with The Farm. Now, everything about the farm has been downright ridiculous, but there was always some believability to it. I mean, cults exist just as harvesting organs is a thing. Maybe not to the degree presented on the series, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. But how they wrapped up the storyline of the farm was, well, it it was a lot. There was a suicide mission involving Evelyn driving a school bus full of farmies, and for some reason, Betty and Alice on the hood of the school bus, off of a cliff. And then for the ultimate WTF moment, Edgar's plan to take off in a man self-made rocket in his evil Knievel outfit. 
Like, I'm not even joking. Riverdale didn't even just try this. They went all out for it. Alice didn't take any chances and shot Edgar the first chance she got, so he died in a very undramatic way. Betty also diffused a bomb that was attached to Polly using a hair clip, even though there was a room full of FBI agents around her. It really gets more ridiculous when I say it out loud. Betty was honestly on a completely different planet than everyone else on this episode. But we've just come to accept it because that's Riverdale and they do these kinds of things and we just go along with it. Meanwhile, Veronica was trying to take jabs at her father by changing her last name from Lodge to Luna. Jughead was learning that his new school wasn't any all that it seemed to be. And Archie went down this destructive path again while trying to open up his gym as a safe space in town. Hey, at least he still believes in Riverdale. Someone has to. Oh, and Cheryl had a full-on freakout moment when she thought someone snuck in and found Jason. And then when she saw rats coming out of his mummified body, she, like, freaked out. And the look on Tony's face matched mine exactly. Cheryl, honey, no, just no. It's confirmed that Horseshoe Bay, Maine, has a bit of a ghost problem, specifically when there's a powerful nor'easter blowing through the town that brings restless spirits ashore. George, who was cursed by the bucket of blood in the annual seawater ceremony just last week, encountered a ghost who died back in the 70s named Rita. Meanwhile, Nancy helped get the answers she needed about Nick's past and hopefully cleared his name as a murder suspect. Nick did kill someone, but it was self-defense. And despite it seeming like he had a motive to kill Tiffany since she was a key witness in his uh, getting him jailed, the two were actually friends. As Nancy and Nick followed a trail of clues left behind by Tiffany, they found $5 million in old money that was left behind for Nick. So yeah, that might give off the wrong impression, and they should probably not talk about it with anyone. Um, but at least Nick is now no longer on the list of suspects. Now, Bess, on the other hand, she's totally still on the list. Nancy learned that Bess was living in a trailer after it got destroyed in the storm. So she invited her to live with her and then found Tiffany's ring in her belongings. So yeah, it really does seem like she just invited a murderer inside her home. But then I guess, then again, Bess just doesn't give me killer vibes. Um, Of course, the top suspect, in my opinion, is still Ryan, who spent most of the episode with Nancy's dad trying to figure out how to get his money from Tiffany's estate. He apparently owes some bad people, which really doesn't make him look any less guilty. And... I mean, it's not surprising that ghosts are haunting him right now. And then there's Nancy's dad, who has a ton of secrets of his own. After Nancy confronted him about the bloodstained dress belonging to Lucy Sable, he took it and burned it and then lied about getting rid of it and saying he just threw it out in the trash can. Something is not right here. I know it. You know it. Nancy knows it. Girl, and Lucy Sable, she definitely knows it. 
Dynasty gave us a Halloween episode that focused on Fallon's redemption, Blake's cheap escape from jail, and Sammy's hotel, which blew the president of the Historical Alliance, aka the Wicked Witch of the West, aka Melissa, back into town. Also, Jeff Colby returned after sitting out the first two episodes of the season. Fallon's penance for finally telling the truth about Trixie amounted to community service, which she stepped up to complete. I think this is the important part because it truly speaks to Fallon's character development. Yeah, she's still a witty, bossy lady with tons of money, but at least now she's someone who owns up to her mistakes and can pay for the crimes she commits. I never thought I'd see her rocking a highlighter orange vest or gardening, but it was enjoyable. Unfortunately, Fallon's garden kept getting ruined. She assumed it was Adam sabotaging her, which is why she pushed his face into a cake at the Halloween party. But turns out it was actually Trixie's brother, Evan, who didn't think that the punishment fit the crime. His hatred quickly turned into something more after he apologized to Fallon for his actions and then tried kissing her. She almost allowed it before pulling away and saying that she has a fiancé. But there did seem to be a level of history there with Evan. It didn't seem like the first time that these two were quote-unquote attracted to each other. But really, I don't care. I'm not here to ship Evan or any other love triangle that they want to rope Fallon into because Liam is Fallon's endgame. Even if that means there's no drama in Fallon's romantic life moving forward, I'm fine with it. I had the pleasure of speaking with Adam Huber, the stud behind Liam's character for TV Fanatic, and I talked to him about Fallium's future, the revenge on Adam, how long this amnesia storyline will last, and even which storyline his like he's interested in pursuing with Liam's character. Spoiler alert, it's about his kid. So you can check out that whole interview at tvfanatic.com. Adam was honestly such a fun person to chat with, and he's very passionate about bringing Liam to life and just about being part of this dynamic cast. While Liam didn't appear in this episode, um, Adam, the crazy brother, did. And, well, I'm happy to say that Blake is now kind of seeing his son with clearer eyes. He realizes there's something off about Adam and acknowledges that his feud with Fallon is slightly creepy. So maybe they'll finally cut him off from the manor? Blake relied on the new Mrs. Carrington crystal to get him a get-out-of-jail-free card. She arranged a private room, slipped him a knife, which he then gave to an inmate to stab him with. And the judge ordered him on house arrest because a second attack meant his safety was at risk. Honestly, I don't think that would have ever happened in real life and Blake would have just probably been put in isolation, but it did on the show and that's all that matters. So while Blake is out now, he's not a free man just yet and he is on house arrest. Meanwhile, Monica realized her mother, Dominique, was being shady and roofied her, so she reached out to Jeff Colby, who surprised his mom at the Halloween party. You know what? Dominique needs to get what's coming to her. She's hands down one of the worst character characters next to Adam Carrington. If she followed the actual plan, we would have been able to get rid of him, but instead, she wanted to take everybody's money and leave town. Oh, Dominique. And in some exciting news, there's a new Alexis Carrington in town. The show has recast Nicolette Sheridan's role with Elaine Hendricks, who... 
you may recognize best for her role as socialite Meredith Blake on The Parent Trap. I'm a huge fan of this casting and think that maybe she should have just been tapped as Alexis from the get-go. Hopefully she'll bring a new level of pizzazz as Alexis because this show needs it. And it's that time of the year, the annual American football game between the Salvatore School of the Gifted and Mystic Falls on Legacies. But unlike last year, the students from the Salvatore School weren't playing fairly as their new headmaster encouraged them to use their powers to win the game. That resulted in a rather messy game with Josie using a spell to break the arm of the leading quarterback on the human team, whose scholarship was then threatened. Who is this new and dark Josie? She explains the dark feelings inside of her to Landon at the end of the episode, and it's evident that her personality swing was going to play a huge role in the twin merger. Alaric was right in thinking there's something off with Vartimus. At the end of the episode, we watched him feed on the Shunka. But why? And what? And what the hell happened to his face? What kind of monster is he? And where did Caroline find him exactly? Hope skipped the game to fight the next monster, the Shunka, with a little help from Landon. During their hunt, she successfully turned Raphael back into a human, and I was a little disappointed to see that he didn't remember her either. I was sure his wolfiness kept his memory intact. Landon doesn't remember Hope either, but he acknowledged that there's some chemistry between them, which obviously led to Josie's jealousy in the first place. Leave it to legacies to redefine what it means to have a love triangle. But the best storyline, though, has to be Lizzie's crush on Sebastian, a self-proclaimed dangerous vampire that only Lizzie sees. MG followed her when she was acting all strange, only to witness Lizzie making out with herself. Is Sebastian an invisible vampire? Is he a Malivore monster? Or is he a figment of Lizzie's imagination? You let us know. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mimosa Talk. Um, I can't wait to chat about all things TV with you next time. So until then, enjoy your TV week. Um, let me know what you think of episodes. Um, if you agree with me, if you disagree with me, check out TV Fanatic for my interview with Adam Huber and CraveUTV.com for all of my other TV musings. And that's it. Cheers, everyone.